It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording today on Thursday, May 7th, 2020. And I'm really excited to be talking today about what we're watching. One of the main questions and main themes for uh, the many of us who have been in isolation or quarantine is what are you cooking, what are you eating, what are you watching? Uh, and I'm really excited to be talking today with uh, an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, writer, director, producer, Joseph Cedar. So first of all, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. So I, I don't wanna go through your whole filmography, but I'm a big fan of your work, but I'll, I'll name two things in particular we could talk about. Mostly wanna talk today about Our Boys, the powerful series you produced last year for, for HBO, directed and, and wrote. But as a as a person at the Shalom Harbin Institute, I'd be remiss not talking about Footnote also, which has my single favorite line that I think in any movie of all time, which was uh, about the, the protagonist lecturing across Jerusalem. And I, what I love about it is that it's so niche. I mean, it's so unbelievably niche to Jerusalem. So I'm sure that doesn't surprise you that uh, on the Hartman podcast, that's a, a source of fascination. No, we, we shot at the Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, the interior of the office, and we, we stole a few exteriors there too. But Hartman is hovering over that whole film, or at least half of it. I would say the Sun character is, has the Hartman Institute DNA. Yeah, I won't push you to tell me who at Hartman is being profiled in that. But um, but actually, I, I had heard also, and maybe this was from you, but kind of trivia of the movie is that the book that he takes down from the bookshelf where he stored the invitation is volume two of Ray Sheet, the Hartman Journal. True or not true? Okay, that's, that's even uh, too esoteric for me to answer. Every book on the shelf was something that we carefully chose, but I'm not sure about that, what you just said. Okay, fair I'm enough. not aware of it. Okay, fair enough. So um, but let's go back to, to Our Boys, which was a huge phenomenon here in America, obviously on HBO, and also a, 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 a big phenomenon in Israeli society. And we could talk a little bit about the politics. But um, I guess I'm curious for you as a filmmaker and as a producer pushing out what is basically, for lack of a better word, Jewish content or Israeli content in a time right now when American audiences seem so uh, hungry for Israeli content and and for Jewish content as well. What is it about these themes or these topics that is capable of transcending what is ultimately a small audience of American Jews to become mainstream American culture? So I think part of it is that there was always an interest, but now technology has allowed some of these bigger companies, the streaming platforms, to program things that are directed at a at a smaller or more specific niche audience. I mean, having a show on Netflix isn't at the expense of something that has a broader appeal. Getting the Sunday night slot on HBO is more difficult for something that is that you know will interest a smaller group. Uh, so there's always been an interest, but now there's a platform. And there's something about uh, the way word of mouth works today uh, on social media that 
is also extremely effective. And I think these big companies, this is true for movies, but it's more so for television. They're realizing that there's great value in programming something. It has to be good. If it's not good, it won't work. But if it's good, programming something that has its own internal advertising mechanism. So something that appeals to a Jewish audience, which is somewhere between, I would say, maybe even half a million households. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's good, that spreads uh, within days to everyone. And it becomes very, not only popular amongst like ourselves, but this is good for the platforms. So in other words, the, the, the nonsense of the kind, kind of constant chatter on social media among Jewish networks is actually a profitable business for the entertainment industry. Uh, when, it, when it relates to tight-knit communities like the Jewish community. I think so. I can speak, my, my experience is more on the film side. So a company which is relatively large, like um, Sony Classics, the studio, they realize that if they have a good Israeli film, they, they automatically get somewhere between a million and a half and $4 million at the box office. Just because of the way the system fuels itself with spreading the word. And that's, that's a, that's, that saves a lot of money. They know where to put their ads. They know how to, they know how to work it. And after a few films that work, they kind of figured out, okay, all we need to do is put it in here, 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 get these screenings, these people, and it just spreads all over. Got it. So I, I get the economic angle. So now I'm curious a little bit about the, I don't know, I guess relational angle or the questions of meaning that emerge. You know, I went back, I was watching uh, in preparation, went back and watched a, a lot of Our Boys again uh, in preparation for today. And there was a moment, maybe 10 minutes into the show, in which, I don't remember his name, I guess Matan was the the PR guy for the family. I'm sorry, I had a, I was having a hard time not referring to him as Nati from uh, Srugim. Same um, Actually, it was it was kind of recurring throughout the show because obviously there's a small body of Israeli actors, and I was like, oh, I know him. He's from Fauda, and I know I know her from Stiesel. Uh I guess that's probably bound to happen in this industry. But there was a moment right right near the beginning where he he references Tag Mechir, references the price tag folks. Price tag is the phenomenon that's really profiled in the show of. Uh, revenge attacks or revenge killings that are done by uh, Jewish extremists uh, against Palestinians. And what was jarring was there was no explanation in the show of, you know, like most times when there's like a cultural phenomenon that has to get brought to an American audience, they do some way of like explaining on screen what it is that's going on. Uh, Certainly that's the case with like unorthodox, where there's like a constant narration of what's going on. But in your show, it was like, I knew what Tag Mechir was. I was ready to be there. You were kind of expecting that your watchers who weren't of this network were going to kind of be able to figure out the in- intimacies of this culture. So tell, tell me a little bit about that. How do you, how do you think about that? I, I liked it because you weren't explaining it to me. But I'm wondering what it's like for the average viewer who's connecting to a human interest story but has to penetrate a whole bunch of cultural layers and signifiers. Okay, so you're touching one of the most complicated elements of our work um, on, on this show. But this, is, this has been complicated for me in everything that I've done. There is no perfect balance. From the side of the storytellers, we want to work with something that is, is interesting to us and that assumes a certain level of knowledge. Like we're telling stories about ourselves and we have, like if you were telling a story about the Hartman Institute, if you're speaking to other colleagues, then it's one conversation. If you have to explain it to, to a broader audience, it's not as interesting for you. So that, that's the tension that we lived in. HBO, to their credit, right away realized that they're asking a group of insiders to tell a story 
to themselves or to their to their immediate group and not to a broad American or international audience. But then later on, as they were watching some of the rough cuts or even in the scripts, they said, well, what's this? What's this? And then there's this endless list of things that you either have to try to explain without taking the narrative off track or without it being too didactic or take out of the story because people don't get it. So the result is, if you ask me, Our Boys has too many explanations. The amount of times in the first episode that we have to explain what the Jewish division in the Shabbat is, is to me ridiculous. But it came out of some test screenings where people weren't getting it. So we, we had to like record these explanations and stick them in to places that embarrass me to this day. But it's, it's this, I guess it's this negotiation that you have with the executives who are afraid that if too much of the story is, is specific or not understood, then people won't tune in. The, the work process until the very end, for me, doesn't involve that kind of consideration. Try to tell the story from the inside, assuming the characters are insiders, assuming your audience are insiders. And then if problems come up, you try to solve them. So let me loop around using what you said, which is if you're basically primarily speaking to insiders, let me loop around on an obnoxious question that no artist likes to answer, which is around the question of social responsibility that's being created through this through this contract between the producer of a piece of art and the audience to whom it's intended. So if you are primarily basically speaking to people who, if they don't know what Takmachir is, they know where to look, then it, it already suggests that you are in dialogue with people who care about the set of issues that are in front of us. In this particular case, the emotional weight of this story is just overwhelming beyond belief. Any, any American Jew who's connected to Israel was following the story when it was happening. What's motivating you about telling the story, telling it in a particular way? And what, what are your considerations around the emotional calculus of, of being with and, and pushing a community of people who care about this story as much as you do. You're not picking a, a random subject and hoping to engage your viewers because it's interesting. You're kind of probing at one of the most emotionally contentious pieces of the story. So what's what's behind that for you and what motivates you and and how and and where do you see I guess where where do you see yourself in this work as something either of a, as an educator or, or a provocateur around these issues that are so so deeply held by by many of us. So I I would think that on some level, it's not really that different than your motivation with this podcast. Talking about things that are important to you, more than important, essential, necessary. For a film or a a TV show like Our Boys to happen, it has to be vital for the creators to tell the story. Otherwise, it just won't happen. So the motivation is not artificial. You have to tell the story. And then you have to fight for the integrity of the story. But the satisfaction comes from finding an audience like yourself, for instance. Like when, I, when, I'm, when I'm trying to dissect a certain situation and turn it into a dramatic scene, what I'm hoping is that someone who cares about it, like me, will pick up on these details. And that's extremely satisfying. So that, that's, that's, the, that's the motivation. That's the actual work. Later on, when you have to like speak to press or you get reactions and there are all, all these other considerations, then things contaminate that process. You try to find a universal idea or a human emotional theme that exists in the particular. And if, if you don't find that, then you, then you haven't done a good work. But the best, the, the best stories are at once extremely particular, but underneath, even for those who don't get the, the you know, every nuance, 
there's something that touches human behavior at a very fundamental level. The show elicited controversy in Israel, as, as to be expected. I mean, you could sneeze in Israel and it would elicit controversy. But it elicited controversy and it became a little bit of a partisan story. I think the prime minister actually publicly criticized it. You know, can you talk about that a little bit? Like what that, in some ways, that's a proof of the concept, right? That the work is actually significant, that it's touching a chord. It may have something to do a little bit with what I still think are like latent Jewish anxieties, which I can't believe are still there of like, oh my God, they're talking about our stuff in front of non-Jews, right? As though, as though we're, all this is happening in isolation. Can you, I'd just love to hear about like what the experience was like of this becoming a national referendum, a national conversation in Israel for you. So we're, we're already in the third or fourth round of responding to the response. When the first episode came out, there was a very, very harsh um, reaction about us not telling the story of the three Jewish teenagers who were, who were killed. And part of that came from the parents of, of these teenagers. And that, that was really difficult for us to deal with. Um, and then it moved away to a larger circle of people who were upset politically. Why aren't we the victims? Why are you sympathizing with the Palestinian victims? Why are you showing the world uh, that we're, we, we're capable of, of a cruel act of, of killing a young boy? And then after that, there was this other round of, okay, here, here's this uh, lefty clique in the Israeli uh, art community that's going to receive awards at the expense of... So there are all these levels to that. And at, at this point, I can say, looking at it from the, I guess, six months of, of kind of processing the different reactions, is that all of it is good. Uh, it's, that's what a story should do. The first reaction was was really remarkable because it, it, um, it came from someplace that really had pain in it. It was deep. And our reaction was, was the same. And then it, the way it, it, it evolved, I think it touched, it says something about you know, basic values of a society. What are the things that bother them? What are the stories they can accept? What are the stories they reject? Why they reject those stories? So here, there's something very, very interesting that happened. I mean, not putting the Jewish victims at the center of the story touched something that had to do with Israeli and Jewish identity that is, is very important. And I thought it was, it's actually interesting to see how people, I don't know, reacted to, to that. Audiences got a point of view on these factual events that they didn't have before the series. They didn't have the Palestinian story. And they, more importantly for us, they didn't know anything about the killers. And even if people resist certain things, this was watched by, by millions of viewers, and they, 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 I think they got something from it. Let's talk about truth for a minute and accuracy. I kind of lost my breath when I first saw the preview for this because it was so recent. <laughs> and because and I guess I'm used to like historical movies that take an event from the past and then help us understand it in a retrospect. And this was like, oh, I, you've woven in so much actual footage. Um, and I, I, I was in Israel at the time. Like, I remember all of it. So... You know, in general, I know that there's both a responsibility to accuracy and, and you want to get the story right more than your critics want you to get the story right, because otherwise it makes you vulnerable to the, the most obvious criticism. But you are also telling a story. And in the meantime, we're living through a time when uh, when truth is in question. So I'm just I'm just would love for you to riff on on the question of accuracy and truth, especially when it comes to essentially narrating current events uh, and, and how you think about those questions. Okay, so the way I can answer that, I, I think, uh, borrows some some concepts from a previous film of mine, from 
the world of, of uh, Talmud research and philology. This was a collaboration between two Israelis and a Palestinian. There were Israeli producers, there were HBO producers, executives, a number of editors. Um, we had other writers. There were a lot of people involved. There were some guidelines that we had on how to, like, how deep the research should go. But then in the process of making this, we were arguing about everything. Uh, what was true to me wasn't true to Taufik, the Palestinian partner. Sometimes these are big macro questions, like where do we start the story? Or what's the larger context? Sometimes these are really tiny details in a scene that have to do with the performance of an actor, of how to get as close as you can to the truth as we understood it from our research. And the way it works on a, on a TV project is during the writing, you can argue and say, all right, let's not resolve this now. Let's leave it open. There's more than one version. Mm -hmm. On set, you can take more than one take, more than one angle. You can create more versions. During the editing, you have to decide. And this is why it took us about a year to edit this. We had so many versions. And the, ver the different versions have different versions of what we would say is the truth. And they're not the same. What I can say at the end of this process is that I think the result is truer than any version that one of us individually would have created. Something about this group effort and the kind of arguments that we had resulted in something that in some magical way is closer to reality and more balanced than what any of us, if we had like total control of everything, would have done. Now, I don't, um, if you ask Hussein what happened to him during his interrogation, he'll give you one version. If you ask the police officer who interrogated him, he'll give you a different picture. The result on screen is somehow a mesh of those two things. So that's, that's the process was serious. It took a long time. None of us gave up on things that were important to us. And the result is the best that this process can have, I think. That's my answer. I love that because what you're basically, what you're acknowledging is that neither the police officer nor Hussein will say that that's an accurate depiction of what took place, but neither of them as actually has stories that line up with one another. It reminds me of this amazing, the amazing introduction to Ruth Franklin's book on Holocaust fiction, A Thousand Darknesses, Lies and Truth in Holocaust Fiction. And she talks about how even in a time when we are aware of the fallibility of memory, there is some deep belief out there that the work of memoir is somehow more accurate than fiction about trauma. And what she goes on to say is like, why do we value bad memoir over great fiction when it comes to capture these experiences? It also reminds me of, um, there's a Rashomon quality to this because Rashomon would be holding up like the two stories side by side or, or sequential. You're kind of forcing us to, to see a weaving between them, even though on both ends, they're going to be a little bit unsatisfying. Is that right? I don't think it's a Rashomon situation because there are some things that are factual. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, especially today, it's important to acknowledge not everything is open to interpretation because our story leads up to a trial and the trial has like specific evidence. And we're talking about actual characters or real people who stood trial. So there are many things that we agreed on and couldn't change. These were the facts. But around those facts, there are, of course, many things that can be interpreted. But I would say that it's not that there are two separate versions that somehow reach like a middle ground. If you're forced to argue about something, um, then just that process of fighting for it makes you go a little deeper. And sometimes you win. I could convince Hagai or Tarfik that 
this is the way it was. Why? For these 20 reasons. Now, if they weren't there, I wouldn't have to find those 20 reasons. And that way, and they, on their side, they were doing the same thing. And that way, there's just more effort in finding what actually happened. So sometimes it's Taufik's truth. Sometimes it's my truth. But in every time, it's something that we had to work much harder at getting. That's why this, is, this has more integrity than it would have if we didn't have this kind of really contentious partnership. I really appreciate you being with us here today. Let me ask you one last question, which is, you know, I assume that artists and filmmakers look at the world and see stories, whether they're borrowing out the stories or they just present themselves. We're in the middle of a, just an unbelievable human story right now. Um, and without having to like tip your hand about what your next project is necessarily, when you look at the world right now, what are the stories that you feel need to be narrated and, and that might, might one day appear in a great film? Okay, so I'm, I'm going to disappoint you. This, the, the corona hasn't affected my sensibilities at all. It's given me a little more time to, to work on things. There's the deadlines that I thought I have are no longer as deadly, but a good story is a good story always. Maybe there, there are trivial things that somehow lose their appeal at a time when you're afraid of not being able to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, but good stories are usually both trivial and really meaningful at the same time. Well, I, I really appreciate it. Let me say just a personal comment uh, to, as a means of thanking you. So again, again going back to footnote, which I, I saw that movie. I guess it came out 2011. I came to Hartman in 2010, and I was leaving the prospect of an academic career to come work at the Hartman Institute. In fact, while I was on the academic market a couple years before, I remember sitting in a cramped interview room. I mean, you could have scripted it, a cramped interview room with four academics from a major university. And uh, I was applying for a job and I, I was, you know, a scholar of rabbinic Judaism. And they said to me, we think your research is good, but if you're going to come here, you're going to have to do philology. And I said, but I'm not a philologist. I mean, I literally, it's literally, I was pre-quoting your movie. Um, I said, I'm not a philologist. And they said, no, but we all did a phase of philology. This department cares about philology. You're going to have to come spend the first 10 years of your career doing philology. And I ultimately decided not to pursue that and came to the Hartman Institute. So when you have that unbelievable line where he says, I'm not an instructor, I'm a philologist. And that tension between the two, I don't know what in your personal background or in your networks got you to the depth of the intimacy of that strange tension between those two things. But there were a few of us out there in the world who felt incredibly seen. So maybe if just in the context of the topic that you've chosen for this episode of your podcast, the need for both the philologist and the interpreter I mean, that's the, the world is complete because those two exist. The, the best image that was put in my head in that reference, which is true about accuracy in the way you portray an, a religious group on television and is true about the way you treat a text. A kite without a string disappears. But if there's no kite and you just have a string, there's nothing, there's nothing to enjoy. So that, those, you need the string and the kite, and that's true, uh, practically true in both of our work, I think. Perfect. I can't thank you enough for being with us here today and, uh, and keep telling stories. Thank you so much.
So I'm very excited to be joined now by uh, two friends and scholars whose work I love and who I love talking to, who are, who are going to be great interlocutors for us talking today about what we're watching. One of the themes of this pandemic is what are you cooking? What are you eating? What's in your house? Who's in your house with you? Who's not in your house with you? And um, perhaps most importantly, what are you watching? And then the ability to talk with other people about what we're watching. So I'm joined today by Nomi Seidman, a Jackman Professor in Arts at the University of Toronto, and by uh, Shana Weiss, the Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Nomi, thanks so much for being up so early. I think you're on the West Coast right now. So thanks for this commitment for the Jewish people. I'm just rising out there somewhere. So first of all, before we get into the main topic that I want to talk about, which is about uh, in the theme of what we're watching, I want to focus today on unorthodox, partly because Nomi wrote uh, really a breathtaking piece about unorthodox in, in Jewish Review of Books. So we want to talk about that. But besides that, something you're watching, something you're reading, or something you're cooking. Lightning round. Uh, Shana. Never Have I Ever on Netflix and Bon Appetit videos. Bon Appetit videos. Yes. Uh, Nomi? I'm baking bread like other people. I'm watching anything. Um, I'm reading books about Freud. That's the equivalent of watching something, I think. But okay, baking the bread, that's all. That's There's it. a new Netflix series about Freud. It's German. I saw, it's actually one of the very few things that I watched one episode of. In our house, we got through all three seasons of Babylon Berlin. Ooh, uh, because, yeah, we sought refuge in the Weimar Republic. So you can take, take from that what you will. All right, so let's talk a little bit about uh, about what we're watching, and, and in particular, the story of Unorthodox. For, for our listeners, uh, or for our watchers, I suppose, Unorthodox is a four-part series that came out on Netflix, uh, starring Shira Haas, uh, an extraordinary Israeli actress, portraying a, a kind of enactment of, of Deborah Feldman's memoir uh, about leaving the Haredi community. Uh, and the this, this, this show pivots between Brooklyn and Berlin, which is where she flees overnight uh, and ultimately finds a group of friends. Uh, it's a story of uh, self-actualization, of personal growth, uh, etc. And it has struck a chord for many watchers in our circles. Uh, I spoke as well in this podcast to Joseph Cedar. And he, he actually validated something that I didn't know was true, which is actually this is, this culture and, and art is made for us because we're actually a real, even though we're a small number of people, Jews in America, we have tight enough networks that we communicate with one another, talk about this stuff. And that means you can reach half a million to a million households even before you get to non-Jews. There's a whole question about that, but I'd love to hear from both of you about what it feels like to watch us or some version of us on TV. And maybe we'll start, start with you, Nomi, because as you disclose in your writing, this strikes pretty close to home for you. Someone who identifies as, as formerly of the Orthodox or the Haredi community and having left it as well. So, so tell us a little bit about what it feels like just to watch Jews on TV. It makes you realize how, how little you expect it by how powerful it is to see it. It's interesting because the show takes place in the Satmar community, though I'm not sure that it's ever named. And the Rebbe seems to be some little Rebbe who's not a, the actual Satmar Rebbe, who doesn't go sit in people's living rooms. So there's a very odd combination of recognition and non-recognition. I mean, one of the things that, that people were saying in the, in the OTD Facebook groups that I spend a lot of time on was that only Satmar can be shown. Um, they would never show a kind of yeshivish family. Uh, and I grew up basically yeshivish, even though there's some, my father was Hasidic. 
I think it would be odder to see something that was closer to home. But yes, every time you see something, and I, I just watched the the last half hour, and um, I, rem- I actually saw um, footnote with the Hartman Institute 2011 in the Jerusalem Theater. And there's something so shocking about seeing your own world that feels so no one will ever represent it. No one will ever understand it. To see something like that on screen, um, to see somebody describe a Talmud department. You know, I spent my work life in the Jewish studies world. So um, it's exhilarating. And of course, it's never exactly right. And I don't think that some some of the people who are going, well, our stories never get told. But I don't have that feeling about that. I mean, I think our stories get told more often than your average person out there. I mean, what is it to have a story and what is it to have it represented? It's a kind of odd thing of being seen and not. Yeah, so just picking up on Nomi's last point, Jews' stories are told. We can talk about the diversity and what it is, but in the North American context, I think the Jewish story has been told. I think it's being told in different ways and in better ways. But, you know, having watched Never Have I Ever, which is this amazing show about an Indian American family, the discussion in the Asian American or Latinx community about representation, right? Um, Our stories have been told. And it's interesting to see them being told in a different way. I also think, especially with Unorthodox, it's really a German production. The Germanness of it, as you know, Nomi points out, I'm also working on a review, really strikes me as really important. I also want to bring up a term that a friend of mine who is a scholar of the um, American Christian right used in her review of Mrs. America, which is also a great show about Phyllis Shafley. And she distinguishes between nuance and accuracy. And I think this is really important. Because when she talks about nuance, she talks about a show that gets the textures right, the flavors right. But accuracy, a show is never going to be accurate because every single conversation that someone has is not meaningful and poignant and symbolic the same way it needs to be in a television show, right? So I think that's where some of the tensions come up, especially, you know, do they use an Arab? Do they not use an Arab, right? You know, which Rebbe do they go to? Those sort of things. But um, the question of nuance is still there. And, you know, it's definitely weird. It's definitely weird to see yourself. I like to think of myself, you know, I'm observant, but I'm not like those Orthodox people. But for, you know, the vast majority of the outside world, right, they and I are the same, or there's not a lot of daylight between us. Are you suggesting that the things like roof or what I thought was most laughable, which is the face of the Rebbe on the iPhones? Yeah. That was like an amazing little moment. Um, are those nuance or are those accuracy? I would say they're nuance. And I would say because they add that texture and that flavor. It reminds me, you know, of when people talked about, let's say, Srugim, right? One of my other favorite shows about religious Zionists and their dating lives. They're like, well, they're so dramatic, right? And we're like, well, yeah. most people's lives are pretty boring. And you don't want to watch a television show where nothing happens unless you're Seinfeld and you can, you know, be a genius about it. So you have to sort of Bump the level of drama. And, you know, as Joseph Cedars was saying, right, this is about narrative and storytelling, and there has to be a driving narrative in it. And I think that's sometimes something people forget about when they watch these shows. You know, why is it never about happy people? Well, that's actually boring, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I guess there's another piece of this, which is not less about what's going on in TV and Naomi, the memorable line in your piece was about, like, we see everything except the keyhole through which we're looking, right? And we see our, in what ways is, are we the 
what are we watching of ourselves and what are we watching of ourselves watching? There's another piece of this, which, which relates to how these pieces of culture are operating to shape American Jews and in some ways Israeli Jews as well, but let's stick for American Jews now, where the anger about they got this right or that right is not really about nuance or accuracy. It's also about maybe a little bit of fear of representation among the Goyim, which I think still lingers in weird ways for an American Jewish community that is so deeply and profoundly assimilated. Or maybe it's because we're putting so much stock in these culture pieces as the dominant expression of American Judaism in public. Um, you know, on this, like, I was at the APAC conference this year. I ran into Eli Sheva from Stiesel in the lobby of my hotel room. Of course, she's going to be an invited guest. I yell it Sor is her actual name. Okay, but I'm going to go with Eli Sheva from Stiesel. Yeah. Uh, Shira Haas was the moderator for Jewish Federations of North America's big Yomats Mode event. And I, I saw both of those things. I was like, that's weird. Why are these artists and actors playing a role in the formation of Jewish identity and Jewish community and Israel politics for American Judaism. But I, it, I feel like if that's the case, if we're doing that, it shouldn't surprise people that questions of accuracy and nuance become really important because those, they're not merely artists or performers. They are actually in some ways like the leaders of American Jewish life. So I, I wonder, Nomi, whether, why does this stuff matter so much to American Jews right now? And, and is this a, is it a fair or too cynical read? of the Jewish community and, and its relationship to culture. That's so interesting. Do you think it's just Israeli actors that become representative of American Jews or would an American Jewish actor ever be invited to play that role? Sure. Ben Platt could be the chief rabbi of America right now. I mean, you see it with the Saturday Night Seder, which is another piece of, of culture where Jews in Hollywood are the people who they're not just performers because it was like heavily Jewish ritual. They're not just performers, but they are um, ritual performers in public. It's so interesting. There, there is a kind of displacement of who American Jews are um, to some representation of something that isn't actually them. I mean, that's the kind of analysis that I've heard people say about American <laughs> Jews, that they displace their own stories onto Israel, that it's the Israel and the Holocaust is the American Jewish story. And maybe it's the case that for assimilated Jews, who there's actually a lack of a story and you need to find another story in the same way that I think the story of coming out of the closet, even if you're not gay, the story just reaches so deep into who we are as people, that we imagine that we can somehow be fully out in some way. Um, that there's something about American Jews which is very indirect that's expressed through the story. Well, I'm thinking about unorthodox that's expressed through the story. That's not their story, even though it's the story of maybe their parents or their grandparents. And maybe it's a kind of lack of a story. What is our story? I mean, I think the American Jewish story is so mainstream in American entertainment that it's almost hard to, to discern, right? Like, I'm just thinking of comedy, right, to some extent. And it's obviously changed. This is obviously an overstatement. But comedy, to a large extent, right, is American Jewish comedy. 
Seinfeld, you know, even people like Sarah Silverman, Broad City, they are engaging in that tradition. Obviously, they're playing with it. What's really interesting for me is these Israeli actors is that they became part of like the Hasbara machine, with the notable exception, right? What's the one show that didn't? Our Boys. I speak a lot on Israeli TV. I spoke at an event in the fall, and they asked me not to talk about Our Boys because it was too divisive, that they wanted the evening to be fun and free of politics. Um, and so I could, so not to talk about our boys. But Fauda, yes, right? So Fauda, it was, yeah, right. And Fauda has, Leo Ras speaks at APAC, right? He does these events. Um, we could talk about, you know, do they get it? Do they not? Um, but I think it's something distinct that they can hold on to and a reflection of their selves sort of similar to what Nomi said. But definitely there's fear how people will see us. I think especially in the Orthodox community, both in the sort of more modern community and in the Haredi community that's connected to the modern world, there's a lot of, you know, look at the dozens of op-eds. This isn't really us. This isn't really like us. You know, we're not really like this, that sort of thing. The apologetics that have come out of a response to unorthodox. Right. So I th- I, that's where I think, and I think your connection to the Hasbara machine, to Israel advocacy work is so is so on point. It's for, That's why people seem to get so anxious. Like the, the responses to Fauda that say, oh, you know, this show is really anti-Palestinian. You're like, well, okay, but it, it's a piece of culture. It's a piece of art. And it, um, and apropos what, what Joseph Cedar was saying before, it, it represents a viewpoint. And that, that could be true whatever culture, whatever culture or, or book you ever happen to be reading. But if you've tied in your own anxieties about the, the legitimacy of that political viewpoint into the production of culture, and you've turned culture into an instrument for politics, now, it, it always is, but that's where... It always uh, is. You know, it always is. Movies in Israel get state support, generally speaking, right? Television is a little bit different, but even still, like, Jerusalem has funds to convince... Not now. Jerusalem has funds to convince people to shoot there. I mean, other cities do as well. They're not the only one, right? You know, BB tweets about, you know, not watching Our Boys and that sort of thing. They're always tied up in a way. Um, and I don't think they're made political. I think those political things come to the surface. Um, and they're marketed as Israeli at international film festivals, et cetera. Nomi, yeah, one of the things you referenced in your piece was um, the listservs and communities of folks who identify as, let's say, OTD off the derech, having left the path, so to speak, or ex-Orthodox, ex-Ultra-Orthodox. I felt for a long time that this is the most, that the whole community of ex-Ultra-Orthodox Jews is the most ripe community for, in some ways, the production of new Jewish culture, the redefinition of the American Jewish project. I mean, there's just unbelievable literature and writing and poetry coming out of those communities. But you gave us a little bit of a window into the discussions taking place in these communities. And, um, and, and by the, on a personal level, like, I was fascinated to know that you're still in those conversations because you've built such a prominent academic career not in them. So can you just share with us a little bit like what, what those communities are about now? What, is, what are the sets of affirmative identities that define the listservs and populations of folks who, who, who are still operating on a paradigm of having left a certain place. Cause it's, it's yeah. a strange identity of not I, that anymore, you know? Yeah, it is strange. And I, I only discovered it about two years ago. I think I, I, I'm just realizing that I'm so, I'm so impressed by Shana and how much you know about American Jewish culture. And I'm still somebody who is catching up. The first version of the piece that I wrote for the, the Jewish Review of Books 
I called um, Mr. Spock, Dr. Spock, and my husband had to correct me. And I mean, I've basically seen almost no Star Trek. I watch, I know very little about culture, popular culture, I guess. I've, I, I haven't seen most of these shows you're talking about. Um, there's some sort of delay and lag to discover a group of people. First of all, there's just something about those groups. And it's true, it's been like decades and decades for me since I left. And a lot of the people in these groups are are just coming out. And they're coming out in a very different way than I did because they're coming out with this online community in support. Some of them are still in the closet. You know, they type on their screens from the bathroom and on Shabbos kind of thing. Um, and I, I think I've made myself a little bit of an elder statesman in these groups of telling people, look, you can have a life, you can have a good life. You actually have this social capital, you have this cultural capital, um, you have stuff that people want. Um, I've had, because so many people come out of that world with so few skills to make it, um, and because so many of the people in these groups are really living in a very, you know, just have a hard time making it in this world as I did, I encourage people to think about getting a degree in Jewish studies, think about making a, a contribution to the Jewish community. There are so many people that want, that want what you have. Um, and to me, it's it, the, one of the things that was interesting about unorthodox is we don't want to hear you play Schubert. I actually had a, a, an OTD person who's now from again, come to my office at the GTU where I, I taught before Toronto and um, say to me, I want to get a degree in English literature with somebody who knew Paradise Lost by heart and treated it almost like a Talmudic text. Um, and I said, well, you know, he didn't have a GED. He didn't have a BA. There, was, there wasn't really much I could do for him. I was teaching graduate school and he just didn't want to hear about doing Jewish studies. So I think the one of the things I noticed about the way that plays itself out is that the secular world is saying, do Jewish studies to you. If you're one of those people, that's what you have. And I myself just started doing Jewish studies at the doctoral level. At the MA level, I was studying German. Um, but I realized I haven't talked so much about these groups. They're just, they're so much fun. There's something so... Um, people who will get your humor immediately, which is a very specific kind of humor. It's not the same kind of humor as someone in the Orthodox world that wouldn't make fun of these things. So you have to have really deep inside knowledge, but be completely irreverent about it. And I've been talking for a long time, but I could give you examples of like that kind of easy jokes that wouldn't fit anywhere. Like the stereotype about unorthodox, oh, I went to the next neighbor. What was your first big break with tradition? I wrote, I went to the next neighborhood and I wore shotness, which, um, thank you for laughing. But, um, you know, how do you get that on Netflix? And it's just such a complicated joke. It's a joke on the joke of OTD. It's a joke on the memoirs and stuff. And, and to get like a thousand laughs in about two and a half minutes from these people who know exactly the whole mindset is so satisfying. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's why the emotional uh, peak of Unorthodox was 
like, okay, a person leaves a strict community and finds like a dynamic, attractive group of friends immediately. I don't totally buy that, but okay, got it. Um, and they're, they're, they're doing everything they need to do and dealing with the husband who's coming. But, but the heart, the emotional heart of the show is, is precisely when she sings the song from her wedding. And to the, to anybody watching it, who is any way connected to traditional Judaism, that's not just a song from your wedding. That's the song that people would know with the tune that you would know from her wedding. And it's a story of like, that's the, that was like the wink to the, to the watchers of like her, her own identity makes sense now when it's not about just wholesale kind of abandonment of the community. It's the community gave her something that she's going to now use as a lever for her new identity, you know, in the conservatory. I'm going to mention never have I ever again, because it's just so good. And there are lots of interesting parallels. She meets at the like Deja, I think it's called Deja Punish. I apologize if I'm getting it wrong, but like a big Hindu festival. There's a whole episode based on that. It's hilarious because anyone who hangs out at a synagogue on a regular basis will recognize the tropes. Um, But she talks to a college counselor there and he keeps telling her she has to have a story. She doesn't want to, she has a father who passed away. She doesn't want to use that story to get in. And the college counselor is saying that you have to. And if you talk to any minority group or like scholarship kids or whatnot, there's this push to develop a story. Like I was so X and now I became Y or like even my experience of like becoming observant, people are like, well, how wild were you? Honestly, not that wild. Like, didn't do much was a pretty nerdy teenager who liked Jewish things like you know so that push for a story and that you can only draw on your own heritage um I think is sort of the negative side of that right this idea that minorities can only write about themselves that they only can represent that they can only give a narrative that they have to overcome right that's also a very American story um and I also saw those echoes as well and unorthodox and sort of maybe the darker ways or limiting ways and let me ask you a different question, which is, you know, uh, Nomi alluded earlier to, to, you know, you wouldn't make a, you wouldn't make a story about yeshivas Jews. And I think that's probably true in America, but it's definitely not true in Israel. I mean, Shabbatnikim is a story, uh, Shabbatnikim diversifies the picture and Shtisel was a really different, complicated story of a different... Um, Matira Bunot, um, which is a really phenomenal show. Um, fingers crossed we hope to show it at Brandeis in the fall don't hold me to that Um, it is a Israeli show that is both about a rabbi who works in the Agunot department in Ramat Gan so I love that it's set in a bureaucracy but it's also about Haridim who are secretly secular Um, they call themselves the Anusim you know after Spanish conversos and they leave these um, double lives and we learn very quickly that this guy's wife is what is a part of that group I'm friendly with the director and I had coffee with her in Tel Aviv in December and she was showing me Facebook messages from this group, right, of all these people. I think there's something with Hasidim that especially in America um, has a really particular draw, especially if Americans, if they know Hasidim, they know Chabad. Obviously, Satmar and Chabad are not the same thing, but, you know, it has that mystical vibe, which also fits into American religious ideas. But I think you can make a show about anything. I think you could. Um, I think, you know, and I think Shabab Nikim shows that. I think all these things show that. Yeah, I guess my frustration about American Jewish, it may be because my own American Jewish identity and community is not, is ultimately not that interesting and is too niche um, to, you know, like traditional egalitarian television show would be terrible um, and boring. But, um, but it does bother me a little bit that the only way to do American Jewish religion in a deep way 
is either through American cultural Judaism, when there's certain, certainly plenty of that, or through ultra-Orthodox Judaism. And the, the difference in Israel is because of the tapestry of Jewish identity in the country and Arab identity and, and the mixing between them, and also because by, it's already a small TV market. <laughs> So you don't have to, you're not trying to get everybody to watch it. You can get a niche market and, and run a business. You're able to actually access more diversity of, of religious and identity expressions. That's I, mean, I would disagree with you on the last part. Um, they used to think that the small market, but now they, everyone knows that to make money, you have to sell. So that's built in already to when you pitch shows, not everything, but the sort of bigger ones. I would disagree with you on the American Jewish side. Um, I agree that there are still issues going on, but I think if you look in other facets, there are really interesting explorations of culture. Yes, there's more, there's more of that divide and whatnot, um, and maybe it's not on TV. I also think it has to do with, honestly, American Jews who don't know to check themselves or hire, let's say, consultants in the same way you do. Now you hire intimacy consultants, you hire LGBTQ consultants, you hire consultants from certain communities. You know, you look at certain mistakes and you're like, how did this pass anything? But I do think there is still a rich expression of American Jewish life and American Jewish culture. But I think it's still really telling that all these shows have been outsourced, right? It's a German production with Netflix and all these other shows are Israeli. That's definitely still very telling. Well, I'm grateful to both of you for being here today and for, for unpacking some of the big stories that are out there that many Americans and many Jews and many Israelis are watching, but also the human stories that we own uh, you know, to, to recognize that we ourselves are not simply consumers of culture, but our eyes are makers of culture uh, and makers of meaning. And I'm really grateful to you for uh, for being part of our show. So thanks to our to our guests for listening today. Special thanks to our our guests Joseph Cedar, Nomi Seidman, and Shana Weiss. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shell and Parman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David C. Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman, with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis.shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever else podcasts are available. See you next week. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening.